Good morning. Uh, my name is Peter Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if we haven't met before, a special hello and um, love to meet you after the service if you want to come up and, and say good day. I don't know if you've heard this saying before, it's not mine. Um, I don't even know if it's John Piper's, but he says it a lot. Uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that one, uh, but I think that's true. And um, so today, uh, last week, this series, as we lead into Christmas, that's really our goal at uh, Restoration Church for, for me as I preach these sermons, is that we would find in Jesus a satisfaction uh, that we can't find anywhere else. Uh, that, would, that would be true. We say that all the time, right? It's like, you will never be fulfilled, you'll never be satisfied until you find that satisfaction in Jesus. Or Jesus is the only true fulfillment, and, uh, and we believe that to be true, but then sometimes our experience doesn't always match up with that. Or we still go looking other places, right? We are still prone to wonder, we're still prone to think, well, I think there's life found over here. Um, and, and for a little bit, for a small amount of time, you, you think you're right and you may actually experience life, as, as we would call it. Uh, and then as time goes on, you realise, oh, no, that actually isn't where life is found. And you come back and you're like, okay, so where is it? And, and so we just think that God's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, and one of the ways that we do that is we understand and appreciate and worship Jesus Christ, right? So that's kind of what's going on here in this Christmas series as we work our way through part of the Christmas story. It's our hope and our prayer for our church. And so uh, this morning, as we start talking um, about gifts, right? Because gifts, when we think about Christmas, we, we often think about gifts. Um, and you can probably think of time when you're a kid, and all you really cared about when it was Christmas time was gifts, right? And if if you were honest with yourself, uh, you you were most excited about gifts because you would wake up Christmas morning. I I remember just getting up before the sun. I was so excited, and I'd run downstairs to look under the tree to see, okay, what gifts have I got this year? How big are the presents? How many are there? Right? And I'm sure if you talk to the kids, wherever they are, running around, you're like, what are you most excited about for Christmas? Maybe you've taught them to say Jesus, but what's really in their heart is gifts. <laughs> right? And uh, gifts are interesting because uh, they, they tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the person than we care to maybe think about sometimes. So um, the, the gift, when we give gifts, it means... It means quite a lot. And let me just give you an example of this. If, if it came to this Christmas in a couple of weeks and uh, I got my wife an iron and an ironing board, I don't think that would go down too well, right? Because that gift would almost communicate something about what I either expect her to do or what I'm, I'm wanting her to do. And um, I, I just don't think that would go down too well. And even if I didn't mean it that way, I've learned in marriage, it doesn't really matter how you mean it to come across, it's how it's received, right? And so, you know, the gift, when you give it, it, it has some meaning behind it. I remember uh, my brother was always terrible at gifts growing up. He's really good now, but um, he once got a six-pack of Pepsi cans, um, one of the six in our family. He wrapped one each up for everyone and kept one for himself. 
Uh, and so what does that tell you? It tells you he is a selfish boy. And um, <laughs> I remember when I was a teacher, my first year of teaching, I just finished first year of teaching, teaching grade eights and nines. And I don't know if they still do this. I think they do. Like kids often get teachers gifts at the end of the year, like a thank you. And um, this, this girl got me this three foot high stuffed monkey toy. And I was like, why would I want that? And I don't know if she was trying to tell me something about how my teaching ability was or... But just, you know, the, the, the gifts, you get some weird ones. Uh, men often get women flowers, right? And women love receiving flowers. And wh- why is that? Because when you think about flowers, they've, there's nothing really that special about them in terms of what have they been planted into the dirt. They've been, you know, left outside in the weather, They've often been covered in manure or something like that to help them grow, and yet we pull them out of the ground, and all of a sudden, it just lights up a woman's eyes, right? And what is it? It's because there's something special about them. They're beautiful to look at, and they're communicating a message to, hopefully, your partner or spouse or girlfriend or whoever it is, uh, that, you know, you are beautiful like the flowers are beautiful, and you light my life up like these light your face up and all those sorts of things, right? Because the gift, when we give a gift, it actually has some more meaning behind it other than just an exchange of goods, right? If it was that easy, you know, we would, and sometimes some people do this, especially blokes, we just hand some cash, right? It's like, cash, okay, you give me cash, well, we've done the exchange, let's go on our way. And, um, I mean, cash is the best gift because then I can get what I want, but... Uh, Gifts always communicate something more than just the gift itself, right? And the more personal the gift, the more meaning it has behind it. And so if I was to buy my wife flowers, that would be meaningful, right? She would appreciate that. But if I was to buy her chrysanthemums, that would mean more because that's her favorite flower. That would mean that I have thought about her, I've thought about her preferences and what she likes... And she would feel like that is a more meaningful gift because it's more personal. Are you with me so far? Okay, one person is. That's good. Um, <clears throat> today we're going to look at the Christmas story and we're going to look at the gifts. And you've heard these gifts over and over um, probably every Christmas that Jesus was given when he was born, right? And these are just not random gifts. These are not just... Uh, re-gifts where the Magi were like, man, we've got nothing to give him. What has somebody given us? We just pass it on. It wasn't one of those ones. It wasn't like there was any thought behind it. These gifts that are given to Jesus tell us so much about who he is and how we can come to find joy, fulfillment, satisfaction in him and why we should ultimately look to him to worship him. Last week, you might remember we were in the courtroom. We are in Isaiah. And uh, we, we looked at the nation of Israel, and we looked how they were sinful, they were rebellious, uh, they were hypocritical, uh, they lived disordered lives, and God was bringing them into the courtroom, and there was this uh, session going on, and you just thought, all right, Israel is going to cop it here, God the Almighty, the judge, the maker of heaven and earth is just going to bring the hammer down on them, and we get to the end of the passage... And uh, God says, although your sins are like, like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. You remember that? And we realize, okay, this is what God's plan is for humanity. He is going to bring forgiveness of sins. And so today, we're going to look at how does he go about doing that, right? Because if you remember 
way back at the beginning of the story when Adam and Eve sinned, God said to them, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of the good and evil, you will surely die. Right? That was God's promise. That was God's uh, truth that he said to Adam and Eve. And death came into the world and death reigned and death ruled. And so far be it from, for God to go back on his word and, and be called a liar. Right? And so God is going to be true to his word and yet he's going to bring about this idea of forgiveness of sins and life eternal. And so how can those two both coexist at the same time? How can that still be true? It starts, I mean, it started way back in the garden, but we're finally getting some traction when this baby is born in Bethlehem. And we start to see God's plan play out through his son, Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Matthew and read... uh, Read about these magi, these often called wise men from the east, uh, most likely Gentiles, and they come looking for the Messiah. They follow a star, if you remember, in the sky. They're told that the uh, Messiah is going to be born, king of the Jews, and they follow him. They come to Herod. Herod wants to kill Jesus, and so they, he tries to get them to tell uh, him where, they, uh, where Jesus is, and then he says, if you find him, let me know. And so after that kind of conversation, they, uh, they are given direction again to where Jesus is born. And this is what it says. This is chapter, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 9 we'll start at. After they had heard the king, that's Herod, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you've, again, probably heard about the three gifts. So let's have a look at these gifts. Why did they give Jesus these three things? Any significance there? Yes, there is. Let's start with the gift of gold. Gold has been considered the most precious metal found on earth. And uh, it was definitely that, that uh, was the case at the time and all the way through the Old Testament. It's used extensively within the tabernacle, which is the portable temple, before there was a permanent temple that Solomon built. And the temple was uh, set up, and you're going to see a photo here. It sort of had three courts to it, if you like, or three areas to it. You had the outer court, and you can see there that there are small basins, and that would be for purifying and cleaning animals before they were to be sacrificed. You have a large basin down there in the bottom where the priests themselves would cleanse themselves and wash themselves so that they were clean before they gave the sacrifices. And then you can see the, uh, the altar there, with fire coming out of it, where they would give the sacrifices of animals and burn them, and some other sacrifices there as well. And then you'd move into the temple inside the structure, and you can see there is a a large room, and it is full of gold. And uh, this, this part was called the holy place, right? And inside the holy place... 
uh, there were so many pieces of gold, right? There was gold everywhere. There was a golden altar where you would burn incense on, right? Uh, there was a golden table for the bread of the presence. And every Sabbath, the priest would come in and put 12 loaves of bread on the, bread of, the table of the bread of presence. And that would symbolize that God has been with the 12 tribes of Israel. And you had 10 in Solomon's temple, 10 golden lampstands, which you can see at the back, if you look really closely, that's like a menorah with uh, six uh, candlestick holder looking things. Um, they, they would be lit. We um, don't know if it was all day and all night, certainly all night, maybe not during the day. Uh, but that was a, a sign of the covenant community of Israel being God's witness. Um, and they were made out of gold, as you can imagine. Um, and so there's just gold everywhere in this holy place that you can see. And as Solomon built it, I mean, he just adorned it with gold. And then as you move into the next part of the temple... This is called the Holy of Holies, and you've probably heard about that. And as you walk in, there are, there are two cherubims, they're called, uh, which are angels on the left and right. And their wingspan was 15 feet from left to right. right? So these things are massive, huge, big um, gold. Uh, I mean, you can call them statues, but images of, of, of angels. And uh, between them was this thing called the mercy seat, right? This big gold seat. And this was to be the throne of God, right? Where God would sit. And it was completely made out of gold. And underneath the seat was uh, something called the Ark of the Covenant. And this is something that if you remember, if you've read any of the Old Testament, it was where the presence of God would go with the people of Israel. And that sat underneath the uh, mercy seat. And it was made out of gold as well. And so there is this understanding or this connection between gold and the presence of God, right? Even Tom this morning, as he read Isaiah 6, talked about this vision that Isaiah saw of, uh, of God. And what does it say? He says, the train of his robe filled the temple. There was this understanding that the temple kind of reflected where God dwelt. And there is this, this connection between what the temple looked like here on earth and God's dwelling place in heaven. And the way that he could even kind of communicate that would be use the most precious metal that we have being gold. And it communicated this uniqueness, this holiness, this grandness, uh, this, this value that the people of Israel would have towards their God, Yahweh. And so you can just see there is just gold everywhere. And so when the wise men... They come to Jesus and they give him gold. It's not just merely a monetary donation to start his you know, bank account. This is a symbol of Christ's deity. That he is the one who has come from heaven down to earth. That the, the, the God that dwelt in the, in the temple, the presence that was there in that, in that space that was surrounded by gold and signified by gold, he is now with us. He's come from the dwelling place of God. He's to be valued, honoured, glorified. Heaven has come to earth. That's really what the gold is communicating. Second gift is that of frankincense. Uh, what do we know about frankincense? 
The, the, uh, the word is uh, really a compound word, a frank and incense. It really means pure incense. Um, it's a, a sweet-smelling incense that, again, we read and understand about in the Old Testament for its significance. In Exodus, we're told that uh, the high priest would offer incense before the Lord in the holy place every single day. All right? and, and the incense that he would offer would be frankincense. And he would offer that between, before the Lord as a sweet-smelling sweet, sweet aroma. And while he did this, he wore a gold-plated vest. And you can read about this all in the Old Testament. We won't go there this morning with the time that we have. A gold-plated vest. And on the gold-plated vest were 12 jewels, right? And these 12 jewels signified the 12 tribes of Israel, and inscribed on these jewels were actually the names of the tribes of Israel. And thus the high priest would be in the presence of the Lord, as it were, with the people of God on his heart before their God. And so when the wise men give Jesus this gift of frankincense, we are being told from the beginning, there is a hint here, there is a direction that Jesus will be a high priest. He would be what we call a mediator between God and his people. What's a mediator? It's a representative who would mediate between two parties to bring about a settlement. In this case, it would be between a sinful people and a holy God. And because God has the right and the responsibility to deal with sin and wrongdoing... And it's only right that someone or something has to pay the consequence for that. Somebody has to be held responsible for the wrong that is committed and receive the punishment. Right? And so there was this understanding that the high priest would mediate a settlement between God and his people. And the way that he would do this is he would make... There would be ongoing sacrifices, but there was an annual sacrifice once a year that the high priest would make on behalf of the people. And it was done on this day called Yom Kippur, which is, is translated, or we understand, as called the Day of Atonement. And it's the most important day, most significant day in the calendar for the high priest and for the people of Israel. And on that day, he would sacrifice a goat. And uh, he would bring its blood, the goat, the 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 blood of the goat, and he would have it on his, his hands, and uh, he would bring it into the very presence of God, into the temple. And uh, I believe he would, he, would, um, he would wipe it onto the mercy seat within the temple there. And uh, this would signify that the sacrifice... Uh, has been made for the sins of the people of Israel. And then he would take his hand and he would put it on another goat that was alive. And there would obviously be some blood stained onto this goat and then they would set that goat free and it would be free to leave and it would take off, right? And this was called the scapegoat. And it was this understanding that the sacrifice and the sins have been paid for and that there is freedom now for what has been done. And the goat would almost symbolize this, this, uh, this freedom that would take place. And that's how we get the idea of a scapegoat. And we use that in all sorts of ways now. 
For the wages of sin was death, and so it was that the goat had, the first goat had to die in order that the others may live. Now, this is all symbolic, of course, because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin completely, for they are not a like-for-like substitution. And so we understand that by receiving the gift of frankincense, God, through the writer of Matthew in the story, is communicating to us that Jesus is going to be a high priest... He's going to be a mediator. Hebrews 9.15 confirms this for us. This is what it says. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of, the new covenant, of a new covenant. Now, with that in mind, we take a look at our last gift and see how this all kind of pulls together. Last gift was myrrh. Myrrh was a perfume. It was sometimes used for anointing. If you remember uh, the, the woman who uh, anointed Jesus' feet with her hair, covered her hair with perfume, it was most likely myrrh. But it was also used by the Jews um, for embalming a dead body before the burial. You see, Jesus was our high priest, but he did not come to sacrifice a goat. Hebrews 10, 4 and 5 says this. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. See, instead of an animal, Jesus is going to sacrifice himself. The guilt of humanity's sin must be carried out upon an equal substitute. Must be carried out upon a human. And so God became man in order to save man. And Jesus laid down his life and sacrificed himself for the sins of the world. In order that God the Father may always be true and rightly punish wrongdoing, and yet gracious and make a way of escape for those who choose to accept that salvation provided by Jesus. See, Jesus took our place. And this is why the Bible says that God is both just and the justifier. He is just in dealing with sin, and He is also the justifier in that He has provided a way of escape, a way that we can be justified, made righteous through his son. And so Jesus, from the very beginning, was always set to die. It was always part of the plan. It was communicated early as he was an infant that here is the embalming perfume that will be used on you. As you lay your life down, And as we read in John 17, after the crucifixion, Jesus is being taken down from the cross. And this is what it says in, in John 17, verse 38. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, 
With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. You see, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And for that to be possible, he had to die. We see from the very beginning that Jesus was given myrrh as a symbol that he would die a sacrificial death. So there are the three gifts. Gold, Jesus as the second member of a triune group, triune God, has left his rightful place in heaven where he resided to come to earth in human form. He assumed a body. Frankincense, that he... He would be a high priest who would mediate between man and God and make sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and myrrh, that that sacrifice would not be a goat or an animal, but himself as our substitute. So where does this all leave us? Well, it leaves us Exactly where the wise men, and maybe this is why they were called wise men, I don't know, but where the magi were. I don't know if you uh, picked that up, but as they came in Matthew 2, on coming on to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They understood that this was a significant baby boy. This was no ordinary child. This was God incarnate who had come to earth. And see, all of history revolves around this one baby born that night that grew to a man that went to a cross that died and didn't stay dead, but rose again. And as we go through the Old Testament, from the garden onwards, we're all looking for the Messiah. And then he's there. And the Magi respond accordingly where they bow down and worship. And ever since we've been, we've been looking back at what Jesus did, and now we're looking forward to when he returns and All of history really revolves around this one baby boy that became a man that died and rose again. And so this Christmas, as you think about gifts, uh, you're probably going to give some gifts, you're probably going to receive some gifts and... um, I think often we can just think that's anti-biblical or anti-Christian or you can get wrapped up in, you know, the gifts. And um, I'm not saying to go out on gifts, but it is, again, a reminder to us about the greatest gift that humanity's ever received. That when we give a gift, it, it is just a small 
tiny representation of what we have been given. And so as you wrap those gifts, as you give those gifts, as you receive those gifts, I, I wonder if it might just jog something in your memory about, man, I have been given the greatest gift and it came through a man 2,000 odd years ago. So, would you pray with me? My Father, we're lost without you. And we're just so prone to wander. We're so prone to go chasing after other things. Our heart can be restless. And yet uh, we know that our satisfaction and our rest is found in relationship with you. And you've made that possible. You have made the forgiveness of sins possible through Jesus. And we stop and pause and thank you for that. So help us now to reflect and rightly think of you, rightly accept salvation. Forgive us for when we have strayed, when we have gone after other things, we have ventured after other gods, we have worshipped other things unworthy. Help us now to worship you rightly, appropriately, and may you be glorified as we are satisfied in you. It's in Jesus' name, our High Priest, our Mediator. Amen. Come forward and receive.
let's stand together singing.
good just to worship, worship Jesus for, uh, for the Savior that he is? Is something so uh, joyful and life-giving when we direct our worship towards him because that is the thing that we have been made to do. And uh, when we operate by the way we're meant to, there is a joy, a sweetness, and I hope you felt that this morning. And uh, maybe you haven't, and if you haven't and you're struggling with the Lord or would like to talk about that, I'm down the front. You can come, uh, let's have a conversation and um, see, see if we can make some progress there towards you being closer with your Heavenly Father through Jesus. I'm going to read from Ephesians just as we finish. <clears throat> it's not a traditional benediction, but uh, this is Paul writing to a church in Ephesus, and this is what he says. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Have a great Sunday.